This is the Wealth and Law Podcast, a podcast about the intersection of personal wealth and the legal landscape. We'll take a deep dive into relevant topics. We'll basically teach you what we know, and we'll engage with guests with deep expertise in their field. We hope that you'll enjoy this episode and many more episodes. So please join us on this journey as we try to bring you relevant information that is both timely and important for you to know in order to engage in this area of the world. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and you may have read in the news that things like tax credits for energy efficiency uh, are all the rage. Well, it turns out that they weren't always all the rage. Uh, just recently, they've been around for quite a long time, and because I'm probably not the, the perfect person to talk about them, I'm joined by Randy Crabtree. Randy, thanks for joining me. Well, thanks, Brent, for having me. I'm, I'm excited to have this discussion today. Yeah, me too. For for people in the world who don't know who you are, why don't you give us the high level? You're telling me there's people that don't know who I am? What the heck? I know. Surprise. <laughs> I know there's a lot of people that don't know who I am. Um, so you already said the name. I'm a CPA. Um, I didn't want to scare anybody away with that already, but I'm a CPA. We are going to talk some tax stuff today. I was your traditional CPA, meaning in public accounting for a long time and 15 years ago, I left and started a specialty tax firm. So today we work with credits and incentives only. And believe me, when I made that switch, I thought I loved being a generalist and knowing the tax code from the overall standpoint, which nobody could be an expert at the overall tax code. When I started digging into small sections of the tax code, man, that it's going to sound like a geek here, but man, that was fun. <laughs> that was uh, that I didn't realize that this existed in the world, that you could just be a specialist in small areas of the tax code. So that's what we started this firm 15 years ago called Trimerit. At the point in time, we were just dealing with R&D tax credits, and now we've extended into six different credits and incentives, pretty much supporting tax preparers and their clients is how we go to how do we go to market. So your, your typical client, so to speak, is the tax preparer themselves or, or in conjunction with the tax pre- preparer? Yeah, it, it's it's it, I don't know if it's weird, but it's that our business comes from the tax preparer, mm-hmm. our contracts usually with their client directly. And so there's just as a tax preparer in general, you you know, parts of the tax code exist. And like just a few minutes ago, you cannot be an expert at all of it. You just can't. And so I think it's huge to build relationships with outsourced partners that have expertise in other areas, just like I'm sure you do with certain things as well. Or at least you have other partners in your firm that have experts in other expertise in different areas. Well, for what we do, the CPA firm, the tax preparer comes to us and says, hey, we have a client that we think qualifies for 179D. Um, and can you go out and analyze and calculate, quantify, qualify, document, support, all that kind of stuff. And so we do that. We get the information back to the tax preparer, and then they finish the tax return with the numbers we give them. So so our contracts with the taxpayer, business comes from the tax preparer. Yeah, no, that makes total sense to me. And it might sound weird to somebody else, but okay. that we, we end up in very similar circumstances where um, the client is – the client, the client really is the client of another attorney yep. and will be brought on to team up with the other attorney for their client on very specific issues, very sort of specialized issues or, yep. you know, narrowly focused issues that, you know, exactly for the reasons that you're describing, because things are just so complicated that no one can really know everything. It's, you know, it's interesting you mentioned 
nobody can know all of the tax code. I think um, some people purport to be that way, but I um, <laughs> occasionally will buy the the physical copy of the code just to have like a physical copy because sometimes it's easier for me to flip through it than right than doing it online and they come if you get like the cch or one of those other versions the the thompson crewers uh, right. version of the the code it comes in a massive book I mean, i'm holding up my fingers nobody can see it but the, these each of these books are like four inches thick usually several volumes and they're tissue paper thin pages <laughs> so just imagine yourself say four inches thick of tissue paper thin pages double-sided and you need several several volumes and that's just the internal revenue code that doesn't include the regulations oh right and it doesn't include all of the irs guidance i mean the volume of information is just mind-blowing yeah. Yeah, you're burden me. I don't think I can handle getting the the uh, paper version of that. I just <laughs> I just go online and I do use CCH for research. I'm very fortunate too. We have multiple people in our firm that do research and they're really good at it. So they just give me information. I go talk about it and make it sound like I'm the expert when we have a group of experts that really bring out this information. But yeah, it's fun. That's what you need. That's what teams are for, really. Exactly. Well, you mentioned 179D. I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with 179, if not by code section, but by application, because that's the typical traditional expensing section of the Internal Revenue Code. Think of your, you know, your equipment expenses at the end of the year. In, in my context, my family are farmers, and it, the conversation was always at the end of the year, oh, we've got to spend some money because we want to save money on taxes. Well, they meant they needed to spend this 179 amount to expense, you know, farm equipment. Right. Now I went out to the farm. I've seen all the equipment. It's garbage. So I don't know what they were spending the money on or I don't think they were deploying the money very well. But I yeah, do well, that's, that's exactly what you're doing. No, but I got to come on that for a second because people I so when I was the when I was your normal CPA, you know, out preparing taxes and all that. You know, I'd have clients come to me at the end of the year and I have one specific client I remember. He goes, hey, I'm going to buy a Hummer at the end of the year because I got to save money on taxes. And I'm like, OK, you understand, you know, let's say you're a 30 percent tax bracket. You're going to save 30 percent, but 70 percent of that's still out of pocket. You have a Hummer now, but you didn't it wasn't free just because you you wrote it off. And so. Right. Um, but I got that question. I would have those type of questions all the time. And, and people think, oh, yeah, no, it's free. I'm writing it off. No, it's right. not free. But that's a side note. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> All right. So we want to talk 179D? Yeah. Yeah. To, to set the stage here for yes. people so they, they get an idea of what we're talking about. Yeah. So so what we're going to talk about with 179D, and actually I think we'll talk about 45L as well. These are two things that just got a major little debate on whether it's a major bump as well, because things, some things change. But in the Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA, which I don't like calling it IRA, but I don't like saying Inflation Reduction Act either. So we'll probably go IRA today. Now, hopefully, listeners know what I'm talking about. Well, we could just refer to it as that act. <laughs> that act. That Remember, act. in that act, they did something. <laughs> in that, that, that one of those recent acts, uh, uh, the 179D got a, uh, a major overhaul. And so what, let me give you a background then on what this is. And the, these two we'll talk about mainly today, although I've been known to go on tangents, so we'll see what happens. Um, they're both energy incentives, which is a big part of the IRA. It was based on energy incentives, you know, help us be, you know, use less energy, less fossil fuels, whatever it is. It's, it's just being more energy efficient. So the 179D is the energy efficient commercial building deduction. 
not new in the IRA or that act, not new in that act, uh, was defined in 2005. First year that people could take advantage of taxpayers could take advantage of it was 2006. But it pretty much stayed status quo from 2006 through 2022. So this current year, we still live under the old rules. And then new rules came into play or will come into play uh, January 1st of 2023. Let me give you a little definition then of what this is. Why should you know, business owners or commercial building owners should be concerned about this. What this does, and you talked about depreciation a little bit, 179 is a form of depreciation. This is very similar. It's a it's a form of depreciating a commercial building quicker. I get a deduction today than, than rather than taking a, a typical commercial buildings written off over 39 years, you know, as we're just talking deductions as a taxpayer, you know, would I have, would I want one thirty-ninth of a deduction every year for the next 39 years? Or would I want a big de- chunk of that deduction today? A big chunk today is more valuable. And so with 179D, we get this big chunk today. If we can show that that building's more energy efficient, commercial buildings is what we're going to look at. And there's two users of this. It's really going to expand then in 23. So there's two major users, commercial building owners and actually designers of government buildings can actually get this deduction allocated to them because a government entity can't take this deduction because they're not a taxpaying entity. Starting in 2023, this is expanded to tax-exempt entities can now allocate this deduction to the designer of the building, which is typically an architect, engineer, uh, maybe a general contractor, maybe a mechanical contractor, something like that, somebody who has design activity on this building. But those are the two. I'm not going to differentiate between the the how the value is of the deduction or that we could talk about the bottom line the number's the same but what we do is we look at this building as it's let's say it's built or it's remodeled expanded something done to the building not just a purchase uh, you have to do something to the building we look at that building we do a computer model of that building as it exists today with whatever HVAC systems went in, whatever lighting systems, building envelope systems went in, computer model it, determine the energy usage, computer model that building as if it was meeting energy standards in the past, and that time in the past depends on what year we're looking at. Compare the two. If the building's more energy efficient, I get a deduction today. You could break it into parts, but the bottom line is if I'm 50% more energy efficient, I get in 2022, I get $1.88 a square foot deduction. Prior to that, it was $1.80. It wasn't adjusted for inflation, so this is something to do with inflation. So the $1.88 in 2022, and I get to accelerate $1.88 a square foot deduction from 39 years to one year. That's great. That's the background. Now, the really cool thing is, now I'm getting tax geeky. The really cool thing is, Starting in the year 2023, that deduction can, can go as high as $5 a square foot. And so so almost three times, two and a half times, whatever it is, what it was in the past. And so if we had a 100,000 square foot building, which is a big building, but still 100,000 square foot building prior to 2023, we could take $180,000 potentially if it's an energy efficient building deducted today. Let's say we're at 37% tax bracket. That's a about, well, I think it's exactly $66,000 of tax savings um, that we would get. Now, all of a sudden next year, that same building, if it meets the new requirements, I get $5 a square foot, I get a $500,000 deduction, I got a, a, a 37, what's that, 180, whatever, 180 something thousand dollars probably of savings 
under the new rules. So the, the potential benefit has gone through the roof. Um, I, so I'm rambling have, here. So it, yeah. well, so it doesn't have, if I'm understanding right, so it doesn't have to be a building that's that is newly constructed this year in order to qualify. It sounds like it can be an existing building that you make more energy efficient. Yes, it can. It can be an existing building that you. Yes. So remodel uh, yeah. a, an extension, a addition, just a rehab. We can take that and we can take that into account. Um, the value of deductions based on the year the property was placed in service. So if mm -hmm. it's placed in service in 22, it's $1.88. If placed in service in 23, it could be as high as $5. One interesting thing, if you own the building, you can actually go all the way back to 2006, look and see if you made any improvements or built the building and take the deduction today, even though it's going to be based on the value of the deduction for that year, you can pull it to the current year tax return for the building owner. For yeah. the designer of a government building or starting next year, the tax exempt building, you have to take that deduction the year the building was placed in service. So typically the last three or four tax years are open. You can go back and look and see if there's any benefits sitting there for me. Yeah, very interesting. So if you have, for example, and this was something that we were seeing um, a lot of, I'll say pre the last six months. I don't know if it's quite the same in the uh, in the last six months, just because the interest rates and the the financing have changed on the deals, but we were seeing a lot of clients pitched on private equity deals. And what did they want to do? They wanted to buy warehousing. And what did they all say? They had contracts with Amazon, of course. Oh, and yeah. so, you know, they were all saying they were going to build out these warehouses across the country for Amazon and they had the in with Amazon. You know, those could be potentially large spaces that you could acquire. And if you could put some money into to make it energy efficient, then you could get this additional tax incentive to get into the deal on top of all the other normal real estate tax incentives that are pretty well documented. Yeah, I mean, the other thing for that, and, and that might be what you're speaking, but cost segregation is just another study they could do in. And, and, right. and if they do improvements to that building after they place in a service, there's a chance they could write off a bunch of those improvements in one year as well under the yeah. it's a qualified improvement property rules. So, yeah, which yeah. is a, my my experience being that's a pretty typical play in that uh, in that space that you you know let's say you're a talk about tangents we're on a little bit of a tangent here but let's <laughs> say you know you're an investor in that space you're looking for properties that you can buy uh, and then then you can expand because the expansion cost is is less than the acquisition cost typically of the building and so your your profit margin on the expansion space is far higher than the profit margin on the original space that you acquired. Of course, if you can layer in all of these yep. tax incentives, it's even better. Uh, you you mentioned 45L, how how do the two relate, if at all? Well, they're both energy incentives. They're both resident, they're both real estate incentives. Mm -hmm. 45L is a credit, where 178 idea was a deduction. Mm -hmm. A credit is a dollar for dollar tax savings. So 45L is a credit available for developers of residential property that are energy efficient. This is similar to 179D. It's going through some ma major, even more major changes than the 179D in the IRA. Got potentially more beneficial, but also potentially harder to qualify for because they went from a, you know, having to compare your building to 2006 energy standards or a 2006 energy standard to now you have to meet some energy star requirements and it just has gotten more complicated. But 
what this was was again computer model look at the residential property if it's more energy efficient and the number was 50 percent for this as well we would get a two thousand dollar per unit credit so you know you have 50 units that's a hundred thousand dollars you just reduce your income taxes by a hundred thousand dollars assuming that there's nothing limiting your your usage of it this could go as high now and starting 2023 as $5,000 per unit. And so significant, two and a half times potential, the credit that was out there before. It is residential. Another way that these tie together is prior to the IRA, to qualify for one for 45L, residential credit, you had to be a low-rise property, three stories or less above ground. And if that was the case, you know, and you qualify the math, you can use the deduction. This was residential property. Residential property higher than three stories could be eligible for 178D under the under the old rules. Starting in 2023, size doesn't matter when it comes to a, a 45L credit. And so if you do have a high-rise building, you can apartment building, you can qualify for 179D under the new rules and 45L. So you can start kind of double dipping on these two incentives for for uh, high rise residential properties. So that'd be yeah, kind of interesting. interesting. Yep. Yeah, very interesting. So like your your typical mixed use uh, building where maybe you have retail or commercial on the ground floor or first couple yep. of floors and then residential on top could qualify for either or both. Yep, I think that I think that the the first floor, if it's just commercial, mm-hmm. will just be the uh, 179D still. But then the above, if it's residential, yes, potentially both on that, depending on how it is. So it's it's an interesting area. It's a we are seeing, you know, we do six different credits and incentives. We are seeing so much activity on 45L and 179D right now, just because there's been so much news, or at least news to the people who care about it you know maybe not the general public but it has just been you know crazier than i even expected and the rules haven't even changed yet really the rules change next year and but i think people are really jumping in and uh, trying to see what the value is for themselves yeah it's been uh it's been an interesting little era here i'd say since about 2018 until now when you start to layer on all of the tax incentive if you you know if you're focusing solely on real estate and say development you start looking at all of the federal tax incentives that exist it's it's almost like a completely different landscape because we didn't used to have opportunity zones for example right. and now that's a thing we have and that alone was supposed to be a, a major driver of real estate development which in my experience professionally it was there was a lot of money being dumped into opportunity zone funds, and there still is. There just there are fewer and fewer good parcels in the country to build in opportunity zone funds because they've been built out. So does that mean it's a successful program? Then you think? Well, uh, I think it depends on who you who you ask. I think the people who design the opportunity zone program would say yes. Yeah. I think the biggest flaw of the opportunity zone program is that there was nothing in there that said that you had to benefit people. You just had to benefit property okay. that was it that was okay. the qualification and i think you know the the idea was you're going to bring in development into in essence underserved areas okay yep. so let's sort of set that aside just assuming yep. that that was the idea well just in my very fine state of arizona the opportunity zone census tracts that they selected 
we're not always in the most underserved areas. Oh. And guess what? Surprise, surprise. All the money funneled into the prime locations, not not the areas that nobody wanted to build in anyway. So, yeah, they had these census tracts that they picked that needed development, but they also picked a few cherry ones, and those were the ones that really got all the money. So, yeah, if you look at it from that perspective, maybe you'd yep. say, no, it wasn't so much of a success story. Well, that's interesting. With the, the 178D and the 45L, there's a caveat to m- maximizing your deduction of your credit is you have to meet prevailing wage rules and apprenticeship rules. And so mm. there's an incentive up and above the energy incentive. It's also to bring in, you know, uh, uh, good paying jobs into the area and making sure that you're you're paying people what their what their worth is, I guess, or what the government says the prevailing wage is <laughs> in that area. Uh, so we'll see what that ends up doing to this as well. I guess time will tell. Yeah, time certainly will tell. I mean, it's interesting. I don't think there's a perfect uh program out there to be perfectly honest so i I know it sometimes you're looking for uh uh round pegs with square holes in these things you can't solve everything with real estate development not you know that's not to say that uh all of my clients who are in real estate development don't try to convince me otherwise but i don't think that you can (laughs) yeah i was i I lived in that life for a while i was i was doing i did real estate development for about three years back from 03 to 06. I got out in 06. My partner decided not to get out. Uh, the timing was good for me. Unfortunately, the timing was not good for him at that point. Uh, mm. um, but I lived that life. It's an interesting it's an interesting uh, business for sure. Yeah. Well, I wanted to I wanted to talk to you just re- re- real briefly because we, we sort of started this talking about niche areas, which obviously everybody is now very aware that you have a very niche area and, and a very useful one. Uh, on top of that, but you know you're you're really focused on it. You you run a, your own podcast, Unique CPA podcast, and you know I know you're doing a lot of of uh, presenting on these topics. If you if you're trying to put on your your future tellers hat, so to speak, do you think that this kind of practice, this more niched practices, is the exception or the rule going forward in public accounting? So it's funny you ask that because I was just having I don't know if I call it a debate. I won't say it's an argument. I was just having a debate with somebody. Uh, we were on a call last week, um, group call, and it was during the chat debate. But mm-hmm. I really think it's extremely important to to develop a niche. You know, it depends on the size of your firm. I mean, if you're if you're a top 100 firm, you can have multiple niches within that firm. Especially now, and you mentioned private equity before, and I don't know if you're familiar with this, but private equity is coming into public accounting. It's 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 happening big time, and it's not going to slow down. And when they come in, they're bringing money as well, and they're developing these areas that smaller practitioners are going to have a hard time competing with. And so, if you're the smaller practitioner or any size again that 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 develops a niche, I just see I don't see how you can survive without that because if you I, a good example, I use this all the time and it's a passion of mine is craft beer. I know a, 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 a local CPA in Chicago where I'm at who developed a niche practice dealing with craft breweries. And he is known not just in Chicago and he's a, it's a virtual practice, actually. And, and so he's not only known in Chicago and they're 20, 25 people now. They're known nationwide. He actually has clients worldwide because everybody knows he is the expert dealing with craft breweries. And so when you're talking about, you know, depreciation issues or just cost of goods sold or whatever, I mean, he, I, I, I'm just picking simple ones. He knows it. 
and he he's able to show and he's able to go out to educate. He's able to post on social media that they have this knowledge and they have this. He starts a Slack channel where all of his clients could get in and not only hear what he has to say, but what each other has to say and help each other. And so just developing that niche and becoming this go to expert. I, I just don't know how you can compete with that. And you're going to just especially, like I said, with private equity. So I'm a big I'm a big proponent of niching uh, for mm-hmm. our industry and probably most industries. I mean, it, if you're doing tax work, yep. you know, like like we set this up, maybe we were really sort of setting up the the argument for the the premise here. But, you know, there's just so much to know. It's impossible to know everything. I get a little bit concerned when I hear uh I'll just to pick on CPAs here, although you could do the same yep. thing with lawyers, but oh, um, yeah. I can, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, when I hear a CPA say, well, my my focus is small businesses. And I'm thinking what CPA is not focused on small businesses other than the biggest, biggest, biggest partners at the biggest, biggest, biggest firms. I mean, right. EY and PwC will do small business returns. So, yeah. yes, that's not really a niche. No, if you're a small business expert, uh, that means. You're going to deal with restaurants. You're dealing with construction. You're dealing with retail. You're dealing with medical offices. You're dealing, how can you be an expert in every one of those industries? You can't. Right. right. And so, so pick one. I always talk about picking your passion. You know, if you, if I just mentioned restaurants, let's assume what you, your passion outside of work is. You just love going to fine dining restaurants and just learning everything about them and experiencing that that whole setting of sitting there and the taste and. And, you know, probably you're so passionate, you get to meet the chefs at times and all this. Well, if that's your passion and you love that industry outside of work, bring that inside of work. Even if you're at a large firm, hopefully you have a managing partner or, or, or some whoever's in charge of your group that's going to say, hey, you know, be open to you bringing in a new niche. You know, whether it's just starting with one, you start small, you got your favorite one and they know you're a CPA and they know you're passionate about this, your favorite restaurant. Work on getting them in. Once you get that in, you can start building out this practice. The people that your managers, your supervisors, the partner you're reporting to will see that this passion's coming through, seeing that you, you build this thing. It, it just, I can't see how building your passion, you're getting me on these these topics I love talking about. <laughs> um, the Building your niche based on your passion, who could stop you if that's the way you're going? It's unbelievable. Yeah. And you'll at least have more fun. Yeah, at the minimum. Know? And let's be honest, we're talking about taxes here. It's not we're talking about, we're not talking about baseball stats. Um, oh, I look at I look at this like stats. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> my uh, yeah, my my thought is as well. And I think you you just pointed this out is that I think what people get hung up on is they feel like well if I if if I focus in on a niche then I won't have enough work to do. But it's not an all or nothing proposition. To your point, you find one that you like and you put some focus on that and you learn as much about that as you can. And then you go try to find the next one. And eventually, if you do enough of that and you tell enough people that that's what you're doing, you're going to have more than one to deal with. And it it doesn't have to be 100 percent of your practice. It could be a portion of your practice. I think you you mentioned that maybe you started with with R&D credits and obviously you're doing more than just R&D credits. Yep. No, we do six different things now. We have a leader for each group. Mm-hmm. We don't intermingle them all. I mean, everybody works together just in general. We have, a, I think, a great culture, but we have a leader for each of that group. And that person has a good knowledge base for that group. And 
I think they like what they're doing. The, we <laughs> we've uh, we don't have turnover, which is hard to say in this industry. So I, I think I think we're doing something right. But yeah, it's 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 been great. And what I did just to go on another tangent, because we've decided that that's what we're going to do today. Um, uh, I actually. Well, you can look at niching. I'm going to go backwards one, uh, two seconds. We can sure. look at niching two different ways. Industry, in my mind, or or service. Mine's mm-hmm. service. I service tax credits and incentives. And and so I don't. my industry is tax credits and incentives, but I have a different client base. But we can be experts in that. Or the industry, like we said, with the restaurant. Sure. What I've even gone a step further, personally, five years ago, I was, for the first 10 years of business, I was managing partner you know, decided that that wasn't where my passion was. That wasn't what I really liked doing. And honestly, if I look back, it's not something I was that good at because I wasn't passionate about it. Um, my passion was going out educating. And so that's pretty much my niche now in our business is going out educating tax preparers on tax credits and incentives or even following your passion, or I do a presentation now on mental health awareness, but it's all tied to our industry, our profession. That's my passion. And man, I am I am living my best life. Like every minute is is better than the last. I get to meet you today. I never would have done this if I wasn't out talking about this stuff. So it's it's for me, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, it's true. This has been a lot of fun for me too. Randy, I really appreciate you spending time with me. If if people are trying to find you, what's the easiest way for them to do that? Yeah, it's so in our industry, I'm I'm all over social media. Not me. We have a marketing department, but really, I would just start with our website, try-merit.com. There's a meet the team section there where you can look up my information and or or anything else. But uh, that's probably the best place to start. Okay, cool. And we'll of course have a link in the the show notes. So if somebody's rooting around for it and for some reason Google doesn't work, they can always look there uh, and they'll find you. Randy, again, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me on, Brent. It was a, it was a lot of fun. Hey, listeners, thanks again for joining me on the podcast. It's fun to do it for you. If you're enjoying it, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to my blog at wealthandlaw.com and follow me on social media at wealthandlaw. I'll see you there.